I'm not really a fan of who wants to be a millionaire, but if you are, last September you might have um, seen this on the telly. Million dollars. Playing, playing for a, a million dollars. is the original surname of which American actor? A. Matt Damon. B. Johnny Depp. C. Julia Roberts. D. Winona Ryder. Um, oh, I hate these ones. Uh, Matt Damon, Johnny Depp. Don't think Julia Roberts. Uh, Matt Damon. Possible. Um, Horowitz, Johnny Depp. Winona Ryder. Damon rings the bell. Matt Damon or Winona Ryder? I'm going to have to answer. So um, I'm going to lock in a Matt Damon. Matt Damon is your final answer. Six seconds. Yes, Matt Damon. Answer A. Answer A. Horowitz is the original surname of which American actor? You are tossing up between A and and D. Winona Ryder. Johnny Depp is incorrect. Julia Roberts is incorrect. For one million dollars, Matt Damon is incorrect. Just going for that and then decided Matt Damon at last. It's a strange pastime we have watching people on TV answer questions and if they get them right or wrong, they win money or lose it. That was Jeff Tarr. He was from Butterham in Queensland. And last year in September, that was from Millionaire Hot Seat. It's kind of a spin-off from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. If he got that question right, he would get a million dollars. He got it wrong, so he lost it. There was an interview in the um, Queensland Telegraph the next week and in the interview he said I knew the answer was D but I panicked and blurted out A by mistake he's apparently the top prize loser no one's lost more than a million dollars on millionaire hot seat this is what he said in the interview I was purely there to have a good time but I got it all out of proportion and suddenly before I knew it I was up to the million dollar question and it was very serious if I got the chance to go back, I would go back with a different attitude. It wouldn't be about the experience next time. I'd be there to make money. In other words, if he had a question that big next time, he'd take it all a bit more seriously. I wonder what is the biggest question you've faced in your life? What are the big questions in your life? Where will you live? What job you'll get, who you'll marry, whether to have an operation or not. There's all sorts of big questions that we face, but according to the Bible, there is one big question that everyone must answer, and that is the question that Jesus asks his disciples in this passage, bigger than all those questions. The question is, who is Jesus? Now, this morning, we're actually right in the middle of Mark's gospel. But the first eight chapters of Mark that we've been working through have all been about this question. 
Who is Jesus? Everything we've been reading so far in Mark's Gospel has been preparing us to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Now Mark actually told us right back in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 the answer. You might remember months ago when we started, you might not, but Mark chapter 1 verse 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So as readers of Mark's gospel, we've known all along who Jesus is. He's the Christ, he's the King, he's the Son of God. But the people around Jesus don't know that yet. They've been learning who he is. And from what we've been seeing in Mark's gospel, something very big is going on, isn't it? Jesus burst onto the scene in chapter 1, and everywhere he went, you may remember, people were amazed at his teaching. Why? Not so much because of his cleverness or because of his rhetoric, but because he taught them as one who had authority. Remember from Mark 1. And not only did he teach with authority, his actions backed it up. He drives out evil spirits with a word. He calms storms. He even brings a dead girl back to life. He has authority over the natural world and the supernatural world. He even has the authority of God to forgive people's personal sin against God. And then a few weeks ago we saw, in fact, Jesus is no one less than God come in the flesh to rescue his people, just like in the Old Testament. And in fact, everything in the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel is answering this question, who is Jesus? And then in Mark chapter 8, Jesus pops the question to his disciples. Let's pick it up from verse 27 of Mark 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Now we're going to see what people in Jesus' day were saying about who he was, but I wonder what response we'd get if we asked people that question today in Dubbo. I reckon you get all sorts of answers. Good teacher, moral person, uh, so on. According to a survey that was reported in the Age newspaper last year, half of all Australians believe that Jesus was the most important figure in history. I find that staggering that people would say that, but half of them do apparently. 72% of Australians think that Jesus was a good influence on the world. 42% of Australians think Jesus had some kind of divine powers. The kind of 40, the 42% I bump into around Dubbo don't seem to believe that, but when people are filling in a survey, 42% of Australians think Jesus had some kind of divine powers. 60% don't. 6% of Australians think that Jesus didn't exist. He's just made up. What did people in Jesus' time think? Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Now, they're strange answers, aren't they? John the Baptist, he's dead. Elijah, he lived 800 years before Jesus. One of the prophets, they're all dead. People may not have worked out exactly 
who Jesus is, but whoever he is, he's out there. He's kind of in a category of his own. He's not just another prophet. It's almost as if they can't explain the things Jesus is doing. So he must be some really powerful figure from the past, come back to life. This is the start of something totally new, not like we've seen before. Notice there's, there was kind of no option in Jesus' day to say he didn't exist. He was, he was right there. There was no option to say, well, he was a good moral teacher. He was a religious leader. That simply wasn't true and everyone could see it. He was someone with incredible power and supernatural authority. But it's not enough for Jesus just to hear what other people are saying about who he is. He turns to his disciples, verse 29. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? And see, it's not enough just to kind of think about what other people think about Jesus. Jesus wants to know our view, your view. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because that question matters. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. The Christ. It's a title. It's not Jesus' surname. The word Christ means the anointed one. That was the way in the Old Testament to demonstrate or describe God's king. You are the ruler. You are the king that God promised to us in the Old Testament. You're God's prince. You're the new monarch. You're the one God has provided to rule over us. You're the Christ. That is spot on. That is exactly what Mark told us right back in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Looks like Peter's nailed it. Looks like he's worked out who Jesus is. Or has he? Verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter might have got the title right, that Jesus is the king, but he has no idea of why Jesus came. Peter sees, but he only half sees. He doesn't get the full picture. And I take it that's what this healing miracle was right at the start of this section. Remember, since the first few chapters of Mark's gospel, all the miracles have been done as a way of Jesus to make a point or to teach something. And just before this section, Jesus does a very strange miracle, something that happens nowhere else in Mark or anywhere in the New Testament. Jesus does a miracle that only half works. In Mark 8.22, they bring a blind man to Jesus. Jesus spits on the man's eyes, put his hands on the man, asks the man, do you see anything? The man looks up, verse 24, and says, I see people, but they look like trees walking round. In other words, this miracle has only half worked. He can see something, but he can't see clearly. And then Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes 
and he sees clearly. What on earth is going on there? Well, it's a parable about Jesus' disciples. They only half see. They see who Jesus is, but they don't see why he came. And the second half of Mark's gospel is about Jesus opening his disciples' eyes so that they see who he is. You're the Christ, but that's only half right. Mark 32, uh, verse 32, Mark says, from then on, Jesus spoke plainly about this. Now, this is the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has spoken plainly about his death. Up until now, everything has been in parables. But now that the disciples know who Jesus is, it's time for him to explain clearly what he came for. But this opening of Peter's eyes, this clear talk, this plain talk, it is too much for Peter. And when Jesus starts talking about his death, that he will die, Peter rebukes him. It's not hard to see where Peter's coming from, though, is it? If you'd been following Jesus around, if you had witnessed firsthand his incredible power, supernatural power, unlike anyone who has existed in human history, I reckon you'd be expecting a different game plan than I'm going to die. I'm not sure exactly what you would be expecting, but not that. Over in John's Gospel, in John 6.15, it says that some people wanted to make Jesus king by force. In other words, they knew he was king and they wanted to march into Jerusalem with force and make him king. Now, even if that failed, I reckon that would be seemingly a better option than just letting Jesus die. I mean, at least you gave it a go. Think about this. The Son of God comes into the world and imagine what he could have achieved if he didn't die. I'm a bit of a superhero fan. Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, you name it. They're all fictional characters, but they all use their powers to help people and kill the baddies and fix the world's problems. There's a recent show on telly, V, and these visitors come from outer space and they have incredible powers and they use their powers to set up healing centres all around the world to heal humanity of diseases. Jesus could have done that. Atheists say that if God really loved the world, when Jesus came, he could have revealed to us some basic knowledge about germs so that by basic hygiene, thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths throughout the last 2,000 years could have been avoided. Not a bad point. Imagine if Jesus hadn't died and he was still alive today. 2,000 years of just kind of using his power to help people. I mean, if he was still alive today, you could harness Google Earth and satellite imagery and NASA and everything and Jesus could be in this command centre and the moment the early warning system detects an earthquake or a storm, Jesus could just say, quiet, be still. No more natural disasters. Now, of course, that's stuff from a science fiction movie, but Jesus had that much power. He can calm storms, he can heal people, he can raise the dead, he can drive out evil spirits. What's his game plan? He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. That's the reason Jesus came. And that's the reason why, in verse 31, he says, the Son of Man must suffer. It's his game plan because he must suffer because he came not to band-aid the world's physical problems but to give his life as a ransom for many to solve our biggest problem, our deepest problem, our need to be forgiven. That's the offence of the gospel. That's what people don't get, that we're sinners that we need Jesus to die for us, and that's why he came. In fact, a couple of weeks back, you might have seen Richard Dawkins. He's an atheist. He was on the ABC's Q&A, and this is what he said about the idea that Jesus would die. The New Testament, Richard Dawkins says, you believe, if you believe in the New Testament, that God, the all-powerful creator of the universe, couldn't think of a better way to forgive humanity's sins than to have himself put on earth, tortured and executed in atonement for the sins of humanity. What kind of a horrible, depraved notion is that? That was Richard Dawkins having a go at Christians. But he's right, isn't he? It is a horrible and terrible notion that Jesus, the Son of God, would die. There was no other way to forgive humanity's sin. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, when we pick up in Mark's Gospel in the future, we're going to see that work out. But now Jesus goes on to say not only was it necessary for him to suffer in God's plan, it's exactly the same for anyone who wants to follow him. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, Jesus here is opening the eyes of his disciples, not just to his future, but to their future. Not just their future, but the future of anyone who will follow Jesus. You cannot cling to your dreams. You cannot cling to what you want to do and your little ideas of what's best for this world if you want to follow Jesus. That's what Peter tried to do. But God's plans and God's priorities are different to ours. And to get on board with Jesus, that will be costly. And so you might ask yourself, why would you bother if Jesus asks us to give up so much? Well, the first question I think you've got to ask yourself, according to Jesus, is where will your ambitions lead you? Your life dreams, the things that you get sold on TV, what are they actually achieving? If you could gain everything that you wanted, everything, what will it achieve for you? Verse 36, Jesus says, 
What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is calling you for the sake of your eternal life, for the sake of your soul, and for the sake of him, to lose your life for him and the gospel. See verse 35? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now in the next few chapters, Jesus unpacks about what that means to serve him. And we'll be looking at that when we get to it. But for now, I'd like to think particularly just about the cost of naming Jesus as your Lord. Just of naming him of aligning yourself with Jesus. Because the temptation, according to this passage, is to be ashamed of him. Verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now just pause for a moment, because if you think it's hard being a follower of Jesus now... You've got nothing on what it must have been like for those first disciples of Jesus. I mean, people today wear crosses as pieces of jewellery. It's trendy. In Jesus' day, cross was a method of execution. Having a cross on your church would be like having an electric chair or a hangman's noose, except that an electric chair and a hangman's noose is far more humane than a cross. And we have hundreds of Christians around us to encourage us. We actually have a government and a legal system that is, to some extent, sympathetic to Christianity. We're allowed to talk to other people about Jesus. We're even allowed to go into schools and do it. And there's laws preventing people from persecuting us. In one sense, in Australia, in 2010, it is easy. Although... It's not, is it? There is still a cost, isn't there? Jesus is saying in this passage to follow him, to name him as your king, there'll be a cost. You will cop flack for it, but Jesus is telling his disciples to toughen up and take a stand for him no matter what. And that that is the greatest thing you could possibly do. So how are you going at being a follower of Jesus in front of non-Christians, in what you say, in what you do. Who are the other people that God has placed in your life here in Dubbo who don't yet know Jesus? Maybe it's your hairdresser. Maybe it's your doctor. Maybe it's your mechanic. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the other parents at your children's school. Maybe it's the other people you're at school with. The guy who delivers your hay, your music teacher, your music student, the people you don't, you play sport with. Who are the people in Dubbo who you know who don't know Jesus? And what will it mean for you in front of them to take up your cross and follow Jesus? I mean, for starters, do they know that you're a Christian? Do they know that you go to church? 
Does your hairdresser know that you're a Christian? Does your mechanic? I hope you haven't kept that a secret. There will be some cost to it, but I hope you're not ashamed of Jesus and his words. Maybe this morning you need to decide this week that you're going to let some people know who your king is. The people in your life who are not followers of Jesus, not just do they know you're a Christian, but are you asking them about Jesus? Your neighbours, do you know what they think about Jesus? Have you asked them? Your school friends, have you asked them who they think Jesus is? That'll be costly. It won't come easily or naturally to bring up the gospel, but that must not stop us. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What about you internet people? Do your friends on Facebook know you're a Christian? You might be sending them Farmville invitations and gifts and pirate stuff and pokes and all that other garbage, whatever it is. But do your Facebook friends know that Jesus is impacting your life. I see some people doing it. I see others not. What do you need to do this week to take up your cross and follow Jesus? We saw that video of Jeff Tarr, millionaire hot seat, faced with a big question. He got it wrong. But we're talking here about not just a million dollars. We're talking about your soul. We're talking about the biggest question in life. Who is Jesus? And how will you respond to him? How will you respond to the king, the son of God, who came to give his life for you? Will you follow him on the road to suffering? Not the road to instant healing, Not the road to a stress-free life. Not the road to put a band-aid on all the world's problems. Not the road to fulfill all your dreams. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus? Will you lose your life for him? Will you make a stand in front of others and name him as your king? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. So powerful, such authority, and yet he allowed himself to die on a cross in shame. Father, he gave his life for us. And we pray that you would help us to see things from your perspective that the things that we so often chase in this life, they're worthless 
And yet Jesus is offering us eternal life. Father, thank you that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And we pray that we would not be ashamed to call him our Lord. We pray that this week we might live boldly for Jesus. We pray that you might help us to know what it means to follow the Saviour who gave his life for us, to to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow him. We pray these things for his glory. Amen.